Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Instead of being in Romans this morning, we're going to be in Acts 15 because there have been several... Um, major issues that are coming before our congregation, but also because of the work that we've done in thinking through a government structure for this association of churches, this presbytery. Um, I thought it would be good for us to look today at the issue of the forms of government of churches, and Stephen has been teaching on this the last couple of weeks in the Sunday school class, And so there will be some overlap, probably some contradiction. Um, But before we read, I want to say to you all that uh, from the very beginning, this has been a Presbyterian church. And by that, remember, I don't mean that it's an infant baptizing church. I mean that it's a church that believes in being governed by a plurality of elders, by a multitude of elders, by a number of elders that instead of this church being led by the pastor, this church is led by the pastor working together with the elders. That's the plurality of the eldership, okay? And I want to say what it isn't is it is not congregational. And really, in all teaching and leadership, you need to keep your ears open for the things that are negative, because the positive is always defined by the negative, all right? So if I say we're Presbyterian and we're not congregational, you should give at least as much attention to me saying we're not congregational as you do that we are Presbyterian. Now, what does it mean to be Presbyterian? In, uh, in, in, in the work of Denverman and Tom, there are two categories of eyes, and one is, is people who are old who have presbyopia, and the other is people who are young who have myopia. When I was in seminary, there was an old fox hunting club right next to my seminary out in Massachusetts, and it was called the Myopia Hunt Club. All right? Myopia is characteristic of young people, and what that means is all they can see is themselves. Now, if you get a little older, then you can see a foot in front of you. Myopia is a condition of young eyes, of being able to see up close very well, but not being able to see in the distance. Whereas presbyopia is being able to see in the distance really well, but not even being able to see yourself. You know, some of us, as we get older, you can say, the dude doesn't even know who he is. You know, he's lost all sense of perspective. So... About 25 years ago, I went to Tom, who was here, and uh, he was getting his doctorate at the Thomasry School, and so I would go to him to have my eyes examined. And one day I was there getting my eyes examined by Tom, and Tom at the end said, are you having any trouble adjusting your eyes from distance to up close? I said, like what? And he said, well, like reading. I said, no. And then I said, why do you ask? You know, I was worried something was wrong. 
And he said, well, because as you get older, how old are you? And I said, 40. He said, yeah, at 40, generally, you lose the ability of the elasticity of your lens so that you don't have the ability of changing your focus quickly. And so it'll become more difficult for you to read. And I really resented him because the next day I got up and I could not look in the distance and then refocus. And from that day to this, I have not been able. And so... I'm angry because if he had never said this to me, I wouldn't have had a category for a diagnosis. Why many of you should not look on the internet about your physical conditions. Just forget it, okay? I mean, there's a lot of apple. So anyhow, now you can be resentful that I told you what your problem is. You'll discover it now if you just turn 40. All right. Now... Presbyopia is the ability to see in the distance, but not so much an ability to see up close. This is what you want in elders. You want elders who are, because of their experience and largely because of their failure, they're not able to see the things up close, but they are able to anticipate what the results of decisions are going to be. They're able to see in the distance. So we believe in Presbyterian government. We believe that generally the older people are going to be better to lead us. I mean, that makes sense, right? But it's not the age so much as it is the ability to see in the distance and to have wisdom and to be committed to God. All right, now, we are Presbyterian. We're not congregational. Now, did you know that when the Puritans came over to New England, they were congregational? And so from the very beginning, Reformed doctrine in this country has been bound up with congregationalism. They baptized infants, and they were congregational. We tend to associate not baptizing infants with congregationalism and baptizing infants with Presbyterian government. Now, why were the Puritans congregational? Well, because over in uh, England there had been this major conflict where the government decided that they could control how the churches worshipped. And so on one Sunday, as the tensions grew with the government saying, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, telling the churches what to do. Same issue that Calvin dealt with in Geneva. On a particular Sunday, it was called the Great Ejection. And the great ejection saw something like 2,100 pastors leave their pulpits because of their conscience being opposed to the government telling church what to do. Now, think about this. If you've gone through the great ejection, it kind of makes sense that you're going to switch from Presbyterian government to congregational government. Local rule, right? And so that's what happened. And so when they came over to colonial America... All these churches were local rule. And at the time of Jonathan Edwards, it was so bad that when Jonathan Edwards had the great conflict in his church with his, with his congregation over the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, okay, it was so intense that he, he and other pastors in New England wanted to be able to have relationships with each other and get together and encourage each other and pray for each other and have counsel. And you know, many of the churches said, no, you may not meet with any other pastor you may not have associations of pastors. And you know, many of their churches didn't even have elders. They were so opposed to anybody, you know, you know, you know, don't tread on me. 
Don't tell me what to do. And this is so deep in the DNA of the United States of America. And there's so deep in the DNA of every one of you. We hate authority. And we have the Puritans to thank for some of that, believe it or not. Well, we're not. In many things we are. One good thing is when the Puritans all left their pulpits in the Great Ejection, they went home and wrote commentaries. Honestly. And so we have an unbelievable amount of good writing that got accomplished by the persecution of those pastors, which is really sweet, you know. Now, congregational government is the people saying, don't tread on me. I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote. Don't you do nothing without me voting. Don't you tread on me. Presbyterian is a combination of congregationalism and episcopacy. (laughs) Uh, Some people would object to me saying that, but it's kind of, it's, it's leadership by representational democracy along with congregationalism. And so there is a place for the congregation to make decisions and there's a place for the elders to make decisions. When the elders make decisions, they are making decisions as the congregation, because they represent you. And that's why the elders need to be from you. Living permanently in the community, not a pastor who comes and goes. I remember up in Wisconsin, them saying, oh, we know you're going to be gone soon. You know, but that's not who you want as elders, voting on your, you know, your bylaws, voting on uh, discipline and stuff. You want men who are permanently in the community, okay? And so I want to take you through Scripture and show you where we get this from. And Acts 15 is the classic location for us to see this, all right? So, but before we get to Acts 15, um, let me read what is sort of the the classic Old Testament text for the founding of the office of elder. I mean, it's not the founding, but you can see when I read it. Acts 18, 13 to 22. You remember that Moses' father-in-law, they're out in the wilderness, Moses' father-in-law comes to him, and he watches what Moses does, and then he gives him some advice. So I'm going to read that to you and listen. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. I'm of the conviction that nobody should counsel more than 20 hours a week, and that the other time of the week they should cut grass, cook, clean bathrooms, anything but counsel. And the reason is counseling is far and away the hardest work that I have ever done, and I've done hard work. And the reason is when you're counseling, everything in you is trying to bore into the the mind and the heart of the people that you're counseling to try to be sympathetic to them and to help them solve their problems. And that's exhausting work, okay? Listen again, Moses sat to judge the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. I mean, <laughs> okay. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people back then at that time? Uh, that's how they said, dude, what on earth are you doing? Dude. 
Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a what? Come on, what does it say? When they have a dispute. When they have a dispute, it comes to me and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you're doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men... We don't know what the ability is, but they're supposed to have the ability. Able, that's what it means. Okay, what's the ability? We'll get into that more. Able men, and then he elaborates a little bit on this. He says, who, what? Who fear God. How many of our pastors and elders today, do you get the sense that they fear God? I mean, honestly. Who fear God and men of truth. I'm afraid that today in the pulpit, it's more characteristic of preachers that they know how to nuance than it is that they are men of truth. You know what I mean by nuancing? They know how to cop a posture that's halfway in between Scripture and the world, such that the people hear Scripture and the world hears the world. That's exactly what's going on with homosexuality today. They, what they do is they say, we do not believe in homosexual marriage, and we believe that all sexual intercourse should be in the context of marriage. And all the people in the pews go, well, he's standing firm. And then you got revoice. It's like, where did that come from? <laughs> well, guess what? There's all kinds of ways of nuancing the LGBTQ without actually being in favor of homosexual marriage. There's lots of ways of being sympathetic to the sexual perversions of our day without saying, I believe in homosexual marriage and homosexual intimacy. And this is what preachers today do. They're very sophisticated in preaching in such a way that the church hears, well, he's standing firm, he's not in favor of homosexual marriage, and he's not in favor of any sexual contact except, you know, and and then he comes over here and he says, you know, I think homosexual orientation is a real deal, and I'm against reparative therapy, you know. And the people have been put to sleep by his rhetoric, his, his nuancing. And the world's put to sleep by his compromises, and... This is the church today. This is not to be what elders are like. They are to be men who fear God, not men who fear the congregation and not men who fear the protesters outside their seminary. Okay? Men of truth. And then it says those who hate dishonest gain. If you milk your congregation, your sheep, in such a way that they support you and provide you a good income, but you compromise their consciences on the battleground of the day. What is this? It's dishonest game. You're purporting to be God's spokesman when in fact what you are is the mediator of the compromises of Christians. You you understand this? It's dishonest game. 
And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And if I said, as I've said to you before, that means that, in, that Indianapolis would have 70,000 elders. That means that this church would have somewhere between 40 and 50 elders. Why? What do they do? What do they do? They resolve conflict. My job and the job of the elders in this church is to instruct you in godliness, to call you to the gospel. There are a host of things, but especially the elders, their central job is to protect this church from doctrinal schism and from uh, conflict of behavior and of doctrine, conflict. They are to protect you from conflict. When you come to a pastor or an elder and you ask for counseling, the reason you're asking for counseling is that you want them to resolve your conflict. I know you don't think this is why you come to them. We don't talk this way because it's, it's kind of humiliating. Well, so you're fighting again, huh? You know, they come, a couple comes to the office, you know, it's, they're married, you know. And they, oh, you're fighting again. Well, no, but we just, and you know what they would say. They'd say, well, no, 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 no. We just need a little help. Aw, that's sweet. Just a little help, huh? And then you sit there and your hair stands on end as you hear the vibes, you know? As you watch the body posture. <laughs> How many of you have had me comment on your body posture in my office? Raise your hand. Look around, people. <laughs> and the rest of you haven't come in yet. <laughs> you know, when a couple's sitting there and they're slightly turned away from each other, when the woman has her arms like this, what elders do is they mediate conflict. And what this means is every single one of you is always fighting. You're fighting all the time. And you say, I'm not fighting, it's my wife who's fighting. I say, see, that's part of the fight. You know, who's responsible? Who blew it? Who's sinning? And this is the work of elders. And it's such a constant work in the church that Moses was there from morning until night. And so his father-in-law said, have one elder for every ten, and then you only handle the difficult things. So here we have a system of courts, graded courts. And it comes from 10 to 100, finally up to Moses. Really difficult things, right, are, are with Moses. I think if we'll admit that elders are the ones that mediate conflict, I think it'll make it easier on the elders and easier on the congregation. You should not be surprised that you need somebody to help you solve problems. It's the human condition, okay? Now, that's sort of the origin of the office of elder. Then we get to the New Testament, we see the same thing. In the list of credentials for a man who is being considered for elder, we read this in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. He should be this, he should be this, he sh and then this is one. He, this is the prospective elder, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his own children under control with all dignity. Now, 
it's easy for many men and their wives to keep their children under control. There are many people, in fact, some of, some of the wonderful souls here present today, the way they do it is they just yell at their children. You know, the minute the conflict reaches a decibel level that is irritating them, they say, would you all shut up? Go to your room. Blah, 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 blah. And everybody trembles because it's dad or it's mom, and they know that the consequences could be bad if they don't shut up. But it says they can manage conflict with what? With all dignity. And what is required for dignity? What's required for dignity is judgment. Many of you refuse to make judgments in your, in your parenting. You just shut them up. But good leadership is going to listen for where the truth is. They're going to watch to see who's the oppressor. You see, you have to be, as a leader in your home, a, a, a judge of, of the motives and the, and the postures and the habits and the character of your children. You should know which child oppresses through weakness and which child oppresses through strength. We, you should know. Listen, as a parent, as an elder, as a Titus II woman, wherever, if you're a teacher, wherever you have authority, you have to maintain control with dignity. You have to be concerned about the truth. They're men of truth. You have to be concerned to be equitable, to have discernment. Are you all with me? Okay. If a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? I love that. Again, the note is that churches fight. We need officers who will resolve our conflict, who will be dignified and keep the peace. Have you ever known authorities who are undignified? An awful lot of the work of pastors is with husbands who are undignified. (laughs) It's such a humiliation to their wives. You know what we all call them? We always call them Barney Fife. There's nobody more undignified than Barney Fife. You know, every person in the world is just filled with joy when he comes out there, citizens arrest, citizens arrest, you know? If you haven't watched it, you need to watch just that episode because it's the quintessential example of an undignified authority. And often an undignified authority is more concentrating on the authority he has than on keeping the peace. That's almost the definition of Barney Fife's. They're so filled up with pride and a sense of office that they're no useful. They're just completely inept. Why? Well, because they spend all their time trying to protect their office and its dignity. And so guess what? They don't have any, any what? They don't have any dignity at all. The man who tries to protect his masculinity has no masculinity to protect. I hope some of you heard that. Men who are men don't think about being men. They just are. You know, uh, Mike, 
do you think Mike has ever spent a moment trying to figure out what it means to be a man? He left so I can talk about him. Oh, he just walked in again? Oh, there he is. (laughs) Don't worry, Mike, it was all good. Okay, now, there's conflict. There have to be dignified men who are men of truth, who men don't like dishonest gain, who fear God, who will resolve the conflict. And they need to do it with dignity because if they can't do this in their own home, how in the world are they going to do with this the church? And then we get to Acts 15. And this is where we see the back and forth nature of how this plays out in the church. Now, you remember the storyline is that all through the New Testament church is perpetual conflict over the issue of keeping the law. What law of the Old Covenant should we continue to keep? What law shouldn't we? And it centers around the issue of circumcision. Do you have to be circumcised to to be saved? And so in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is on a scale of 1 to 10, how intense over the issue of circumcision? Yeah, 25. He is intense. But notice how different Galatians is from what we see in Acts 15. It's very interesting. Acts 15, beginning with verse 1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. This is in Antioch. And this is what they taught them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That puts it pretty directly, doesn't it? You can't be saved without circumcision. And when Paul and Barnabas had what? No, 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 not dissension. Come on, read it accurately. Great dissension. Great dissension. And debate. It's like, yikes. This is something that millennials are not capable of. They're not capable of dissension. Unless it's their clothing they're going to argue about. And completely incapable of great dissension and utterly incapable of debate. Because millennials, everything's personal, you know? And don't worry, I said this to my nephew and the three friends from Toledo that were in my house this weekend, sitting with them in the living room, up close and personal. That The thing that was most depressing to me about younger people today is that they have lost the ability to be concerned about truth. And so they're incapable of having any debate of logic, of reason, of anything, and particularly incapable of acknowledging the authority of words in Scripture. Because to them, everything's personal. You know? Well, how does it make you feel? You know? Well, it doesn't make me feel good. And I'm mocking them. And it's so debilitating to the life of godliness. Everything's personal. You can't debate, you can't convince them of anything unless it's that they're good-looking and they know style. But they knew that before you said anything to them anyhow. I don't care if I have your approval, I have his. Okay. Great dissension to debate with them. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So they've got an apostle. They've got the son of encouragement, Barnabas, great dissension. Some, of, some celebrity teachers are not given the dignity of an office. Some men 
all right, from Jerusalem, from Judea, have come up. So they take the apostle and the son of encouragement, Barnabas, and they send them down to whom? Did you notice what it said? It said, to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So this is what we're trying to establish by establishing evangel presbytery. They'll go to the presbytery, which is the apostles and the elders, except we don't believe we have apostles now. They go to the elders. They go to the pastors and elders. All right. Concerning this issue, therefore being sent on their way by the what? The church. Do you think that the whole church came out to see them off? Or do you think it was the representatives of the church, the elders? You could see it either way, but I tend to think that probably a a bunch of women showed up. Because I think the women loved the Apostle Paul. And so it was the church. They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Again, what's the brethren? Is the brethren the elders, the elders and apostles, or is the brethren the men? Or is it the male inclusive? And it's everybody. We don't know. But it's probably the male inclusive. Probably everybody was taking joy that the Gentiles were coming to faith. When they arrived at Jerusalem, so now they're, they're in the hometown. They were received by what? The church and the apostles and the elders. Now there we know it's the church and the apostles, and but they were sent to the apostles and elders. What does the church have to do with it? Why the church? And this is Presbyterian government. Presbyterian government is not the officers alone. It is this weird mishmash of the congregation and the elders. And you'll see it as we go forward. Watch this. And they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, and immediately, you know, were like, but then listen to this, who had believed. So here we're doing with Pharisees, who had believed, and then listen to what it says. Stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law. Isn't this weird? They believe and they're saying that you have to be circumcised to be saved. Okay? You all hear this. The apostles and the elders came together. So see how it's back and forth, back and forth. It's the congregation, it's the brothers, it's the apostles, it's the elders. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much what? Debate. Much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, now, that's a shocker, isn't it? Peter, standing up and having something to say, you know. Lord, should we set up some tents here so we can just hang out here? You know. Not me, I'll never. No, I'll never. You know. Lord, to whom else should we go? You alone have. And so Peter still has a big mouth. But. If you understand yourself, you know that much of the time you love the men with the big mouths. Because Peter always speaks for us. It's such a sweet thing. It's like God said, I think I'll make a spokesman. And his name will be Peter. You know? 
Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. What would it have been if, if Paul was the first one that went to the Gentiles? It wouldn't have worked out very well, right? Because he carried most of the water on this issue. But here you got Peter. And he says, hey, God, God used me. I went to them. So Peter sets the precedent, and he carries water for the issue that Paul, the apostle, doesn't have to carry. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Now, listen to this. It says all the people, what? All the people kept silent. All the people. Again, somehow we're back at the point that it's not simply officers. We don't know who all the people were. But you don't say all the people if all you mean is just the apostles and elders. But I could be wrong. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, now it's interesting, here James is, and he's, he, he is calling attention to himself. Because note the pronoun he uses. He says this, brethren, listen to me. Obviously, James had a lot of authority, didn't he? You don't say that kind of thing unless you have a lot of authority. And he's not a Barney Fife. He's not calling attention to himself by doing this. What he's saying is, I think I have some wisdom here. And it's obvious that people depended on him to have wisdom. Does this make sense to you? Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And then he goes through quotes from the prophets saying that God is going to bring in the Gentiles. So he quotes the Old Testament. And then he says, therefore, it is what? Do you see the verse here? It's verse 19. Therefore, it is what? It is my, my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, isn't this fascinating? You have Peter standing up and speaking alone. You have James standing up and speaking alone. Both of them have offices, right? You have the elders. You have the apostles as groups. And you have the congregation as a group. This is how God leads. We don't want to be a part of a church government system that has no voice for the congregation. But we also don't want the congregation to be able to tell the pastors and elders they can't meet together and judge some things themselves. But we want certain things from the elders' judgment to come to the congregation for their approval. And we want Tim Bailey or Jody or Wayne Huck to stand up and say, listen to me. 
And you got this interchange, you got this interplay of different levels of government, different offices, and then the congregation. And so central to Presbyterian polity is, we do not do many things without the vote of the congregation. One of the sad things today about many Baptist churches that are becoming Presbyterian in their polity, they're starting to get elders, is that, man, the minute those elders have gotten rid of the congregational vote, they never let the congregation vote. They don't vote here, they don't vote now, because we're elder rule. But they don't have a clue what elder rule is. Elder rule is submitting to the congregation. And you say, well, how can you be officers and submit to the congregation? Oh, come on. How can you be the head of your home and submit to your wife? How can children have to honor their father and mother and then rebuke their father? Come on. Lighten up. You know, chill out. You know, life is complicated. You know, don't be wooden and brittle. The congregation has a place. Individual officers have a place. The moderator is the pastor generally. Why? Well, because you want somebody who has a sense of where all the individual elders are so he can keep peace in the elders board. And then you've got the elders board, and then you have the presbytery, and then you... Now, I want you to notice here that what he says should be sent back to them in the form of a letter three of the four things we no longer observe. Okay? Only one of them we still observe, and that's avoid fornication. Now, why? Remember how I told you that their resolution of this conflict was on a different level than the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. You with me? The thing that's of concern to them is to bring unity and peace to the congregation of Antioch. And there are times to take half steps in the bringing of peace instead of just saying no or yes. You know, the sheep are having to move from a life centered around the law, and particularly dietary laws, to the freedom in Christ. And guess what? Good leaders will say, let's have a mediating step. And that's why we had you name this church Clear Note before we moved the whole way to Trinity Reformed. <laughs> it occurred to me in the first sermon, I just thought I'd say it here again. <laughs> you know? We thought, hey, you know, if we get them to vote on Clear Note, then in a few years we can come to Trinity Reform and everybody will be so sick of Clear Note that they'll just be happy to make the step the rest of the way. Listen, good leadership is not rigid, except where it has to be. And so if you watch the difference between what they say here and what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, what you know is that what had been uh, maybe a, uh, um, a brush fire was now a conflagration. It was threatening entire cities. It was threatening the gospel. And a lot of leadership is knowing what decibel level to hit things at. 
You know, I, I look at some of you and I think, you were scandalized at my decibel level when I dealt with some things with you. And you thought, well, Tim's just being a jerk. You know, he's like that. Generally, if I hit you at a hard decibel level, it's because I'm convinced that nothing less than that is going to wake you up. And so there are times where you hit people really hard. You say things to them that you want to shake them to the bone. The apostles and the congregation and the elders in Jerusalem did not want to do that with Antioch. Okay? What they wanted to do was establish the peace. So they adopted a mediating position. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Again, we've got three separate things. We've got the apostles, we've got the elders, and we have the church. But we have a word in there that is interesting, right? It, you know, it seemed... Again, don't be rigid and brittle. Generally, the people that have authority over you just think it seems right. And how often you want me to say to you or the elders to say to you, this is the right thing to do. And you hear me say, well, it seems to me. And it's like, I don't want to hear what seems to you. You know, my standard for authority is perfection. You know, I don't want to hear what seems. All right. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send the Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Now, why would they do this? Well, they know if they send the message back with Paul and Barnabas, nobody's going to believe them. These, these celebrity teachers who are up there messing everything up are not going to accept a message that comes from Jerusalem through Paul and Barnabas. And so... They're wise, and they send a couple men to reinforce them, you know? And they're leading men. And all of you should know, in this church, who are the leading men? You know? Well, they choose leading men, okay? And they sent this letter. So, in other words, it's not a question of telephone. You know, the game telephone. No, they write it down. The apostles and the brethren who were elders, and they had the good sense of always having who was sending the letter at the beginning instead of us always having it at the end. It drives me crazy. The apostles and the brethren who were elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles' greetings. So again, you see the church, you see the apostles, the apostles and the elders, and then you see the letter is written from the elders. Isn't this interesting? Okay. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, they own it, to whom we gave no instruction. This is a full rebuke. They're going to show up there. They're going to have a couple of leading men. There's going to be a letter. And Paul and Barnabas are going to be there, nanny, nanny, poo, poo. Think of the tension in that church when they come back and say, we did not send them. Good leaders never avoid having losers who, who, who are clearly censored. Many, many times, the only way you bring peace is you just censor people who are being divisive. You have to do this, okay? They have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. This is pretty serious when the souls are being unsettled. So we didn't send them, and they have disturbed them with words and unsettled their souls. 
This is a full censorship. It seemed good to us, there's that word again, it seemed, it seemed good to us, okay, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did you see that little word, beloved? Beloved Barnabas and Paul. And I love that word because the older I get, the more in love I am with Paul. But do you know how much Paul is despised today? And they say, beloved. But there were people in that church who actually didn't like him. And so then they said this, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you don't love them, fine. They have risked their lives. And that's a full rebuke, people. Because you know the one thing false teachers trying to get followers never do is risk their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. Fine, you don't love them? Don't you dare. You remember how he ends the book of Galatians? From now on, don't give me any problem. Because I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. Reinforcements. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Whoa. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. That's weird. That's like Pentecostal. You know? Who purports to speak for the Holy Spirit like that? It seemed good. You know, the Holy Spirit, I'm not being blasphemous. The Holy Spirit, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. How does a guy get, even an apostle, how does he get into a place where he says that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit? I mean, think about this. It's offensive. And then he says, and to us. And so he has the audacity to say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How does he, how does he, where did that come from? So afterwards, D. Wayne comes up to me. I have a couple questions, and typically he doesn't have questions. And he had it written down, and his question was, what happens when your leaders are wrong? You know, what do you do then? Isn't it interesting that the way they describe themselves and then the way they describe the Holy Spirit is it seemed good. And that seemingness comes after intense argument in Antioch. Such bad argument that they have to go down and appeal it to the Presbyterian. Then the congregation and the elders and the uh, apostles in Jerusalem adjudicate it. Then James says something. Peter says something. And then out of this comes, it seemed good to us. And then out of it comes, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And listen, there's not one of you who would ever describe any decision that you have made in your family, in your marriage, or in the church that way. And so what's going on here? 
A little while ago, Josh Congrove was concerned that we have uh, the people who work in the nursery, which generally is three-quarters of the congregation, um, be able to vote in meetings and not be prohibited from voting because they're back there with the kids. And the elders decided, no, you know why? Because we believe that when the congregation and the elders meet, that the Holy Spirit, we ask him to lead us. And we believe that part of the leadership is the debate and the discussion and the weighing of the congregation. And if you're not present, you should not vote. Why? We want everybody to have been present and look around and listen and then say, okay, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And that is the standard for leadership in the church. That at the end of it, we have the faith to confess that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Does this make sense? Calvin, writing on this text, talks about the scandal of yoking the Holy Spirit to the elders. Okay? And of course, he's writing at the time of the Reformation, and he's writing at a time when all the role of the congregation in making decisions has been completely removed from the church. Right? You, you all realize this about Roman Catholicism is that the church has no place in it. You've noted in the, in, in, in the news yesterday that the International Human Rights Committee is appealing to the Pope to make a ruling that all laws against homosexuality are wrong and should not be passed. And so you just appeal to the Pope, and if the Pope decides that capital punishment is wrong, that the Jews have another way of coming into the faith, that laws against sodomy are wrong, he just makes a decision, and it flows down through the cardinals to the bishops, the archbishops, parish priests, the religious, and it's done. So Calvin's writing in this context, and Calvin says that biblical leadership and biblical government depends upon men who have authority from God. It's very interesting. That's what he says. And, and the point he's making is God does not lead without sinful authority. And if we could get this into our heads in 2019, for heaven's sakes, there is no such thing as leadership in this world that is not mediated from God. Even the word of God you have preached to you. I'm mediating the word of God to you. And it's infallible. It's inerrant. And God's pleased to use the preaching of the word by men who have feet of clay. And this is not, uh, what would you call it, a design error. This is a design feature. And why? Because it humbles you. And if you're unwilling to be humbled, you'll go find a church where the pastor uses hairspray. And he has a doctorate and preferably a British accent. And he never messes with your life. And there's so many people that you're anonymous year after year after year, and you have no benefit of a sinful man looking in your face and saying, you are wrong. 
and he is sinful, and your elders are sinful, there has never been an authority on this earth other than Jesus Christ who has not had obvious sin. Your husband has obvious sin. Your parents have obvious sin. Your pastor has obvious sin. Your elders have obvious sin. Your deacons have obvious sin. And John Calvin says, these things are not in opposition. And do you know what he goes on and says, and this is something I've only been learning this year, but he goes on and says that those proud men who claim to have faith in the gospel but will not submit to any men are hopeless. And you know that the Reformers said again and again that men who would not submit to church authority were men that there was no hope for. They say again and again that the soul of the man who will not put himself under authority is a soul that is likely not to reach eternal life. And you think, oh, but all you have to do is pray a sinner's prayer and you're saved. (laughs) That's not the way any of the Reformers saw it. The Reformers understood that part of salvation is the discipline and instruction of mother church. You know, imagine a little baby coming out and, okay, mom, I'm here, I'm done with you. You know, somehow God has arranged it that little babies need their mother pretty much as much after birth as before. Right? You all understand, any of you had babies? You know? And it goes on year after year, and no mother is done mothering until she dies. Or until her child dies. But only death will separate a mother and her children. Come on, tell me I'm telling the truth. God has arranged that the church is the same. There is no one who has been born again by the Spirit that is not born to the mother church and that does not need that mother until the day we die. You need her feeding. Calvin says you need you will nurse at her breast, but I'm not going to say that because today we're a little bit uptight about that kind of stuff. You know, somebody will tell me that I'm, you know, my language is bad. But that's what Calvin said. We nurse at her breast until the day we die. We are cleaned by her. We are washed by her. We are nursed by her. And we never leave her school until the day we die. And so, um, (laughs) I must be way out of time. I just thought, where's David? Okay, I'll get done. Um, I just want to say to you that the interplay of all these authorities, all these voices, the arguments, all of this stuff is how God intends. It's not, it's not an error in the design. It's a feature. And what it does is it causes your leaders to be humble. And when they're at their firmest, they will say, <laughs> what? Come on, tell me. <laughs> it, it seemed to the Holy Spirit and to us. Okay, can we live with that?
Okay, let's live with that. Let's come to the Lord's table.